the reason that tourists, pilgrims, come to Bethlehem is, of course, the Church of the Nativity. Constantine built the first one in 339, and parts of its mosaic floors can still be seen within the later 6th century Justinian church. Originally, the doors into that church were tall and wide, but later generations made them smaller. Some say to keep the followers of the prophet Muhammad from riding their horses through the sanctuary. Now there's one door, narrow and only about four and a half feet high. You have to duck your head to enter. And skeptics say that was so any unwelcome visitor could be coshed over the head by the guardian monk. The faith-filled say it's only right that each of us should enter such a holy place by bowing. Well, there's a long line waiting to enter. And once inside, folk wander about to see the mosaics left by crusaders who really wanted to make such an important shrine more beautiful. But soon there is another line that leads back behind the altar, down narrow steps, and through yet another small door. The line is very quiet and mostly patient. Pilgrims who speak only English give their hand to another pilgrim who speaks only Italian because both speak the language of faith and she needs some steadying. And through the door just to the right is the cave that was once a stable, but which offered a modicum of privacy to a young woman about to give birth. And there on the floor where the cave opens is a silver star. Pilgrims kneel and touch it with reverence, with prayer. For here, in this very spot, because of the will of God and the willingness of Mary, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word spoken at creation to bring forth light from dark, life from emptiness, that word became a human being. And here, in Mary's cave, we touch the very place where God no longer stayed remote and distant. Here we touch the place of incarnation, the place of God with us. Well, some stop there and then climb the steps to return to the ancient church. Others go deeper to explore other caves found under the church. And to the left, off to the back, is the cave of St. Jerome. He came here shortly after Constantine built the first building. The church needed a Bible, and it needed it in Latin, which was the lingua franca of the ancient world. So many people spoke Latin. And so the Pope sought out the finest biblical scholar of the day and asked him to undertake the task. Now, Jerome was a difficult man, cantankerous and hard to live with. But here, in this cave in Bethlehem, neighbor to the cave of Mary, he produced a masterwork the Bible in Latin. We know it as the Vulgate of the 4th century, and it became the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church ever since the Council of Trent in 1546, and it stayed that way for over 400 years. Now, this is Reformation Sunday, so it may seem odd to find a Presbyterian talking about a Bible so central to the life of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, after all, we're the ones who stress scripture, right? But remember, when Jerome completed his very important work, 
the Protestant-Roman divide did not exist. That was a very different time. And I honor him today because he began a tradition that lies at the heart of what we Protestants cherish. And while we scorn the idea of having a Bible available in Latin, a language that nobody speaks much today except the Roman Catholic Church, and them less and less, in Jerome's day, that translation made the Bible available to most people. Educated people could read Latin. And so they were no longer shut off from it because of the original documents in either Greek or Hebrew. It was available to them. And the words that Jerome put on paper bore witness to the word, which is Jesus Christ, and helped so many to believe and to grow and to trust our Lord. Our own Reformation continued that important task. The Bible was translated into so many languages, and the words have become accessible all across the world. Wycliffe Bible translators go out into remote places and in many ways rescue ancient languages because they translate the Bible for them. But now that they're accessible, the question arises, how do we use that word? How do we use the Bible and how do we understand its power? And it's here that Protestants and Roman Catholics come to somewhat different answers. Fortunately, we're not as far apart as we once were. We've learned from each other. But we do have a fundamental difference. And what I want to say, I want to say very carefully, because too often Reformation Sunday has been a time when we point out all the things that are wrong with those other people and try to maintain the illusion that we, of course, are above such kinds of betrayals. It's not my intent. But I do think it helps to understand the role that Scripture has for us and for them. You see, there are two polarities, and we weight them differently. On one side is the authority of the church, and the other that of Scripture. One side says, the Bible is the church's book. It was written by and for the church, and the church will tell you how to apply it. The church stands over above Scripture. Well, the other says, the Bible helped to form the church. It stands apart from it. The Bible has authority over the church. The strength of giving weight to the church is that we only have one single interpretation, the church tells you. And the problem is that it's hard to admit that the church has made a mistake. You know, having said thus and so, how do you say, oops? And of course, those of us on the other side have just the opposite problem. With no one single authoritative interpretation, there are times we can have a hard time finding common ground. I mean, all you have to do is witness the tangle our own denomination is pretty good at getting into. On the other hand, when we make a mistake, reformed and always being reformed, which is our Presbyterian motto, we know that we stand under the authority of Scripture. And when it leads us to see the error of our ways, we can do that. That very thing happened some years ago to the Reformed Church of South Africa. For years, they maintained that apartheid was an acceptable stand for Christians. In fact, they thought it was not only acceptable, but appropriate. And even when the World Alliance of Reformed Churches expelled them, they still clung to that claim. But not forever. And the day came when they said, we have studied the Bible. We were wrong. We repent. See, that's the danger of being serious about Scripture. 
The words are indeed a two-edged sword cutting to the very marrow of our human arguments, our denials, our excuses. They hold us up for judgment. Our own, when we judge ourselves against the light of those words, and the judgment of God. And the challenge is not that we can change, but that we must change. And that's as true for us as a church as it is for individuals. That is, after all, what brought about the Reformation in the first place. The abuses of the medieval church are many and well-known, and I prefer to use the medieval term rather than today because they've done their own Reformation. Basically, they'd lost their mooring, and Scripture was a closed book, unknown not only by common folk, but even by many of the clergy. And when folk like Jan Hus, William Tyndall, Martin Luther, George Wishart, John Knox, John Calvin, started to read the Bible and listen to what it really said, there simply was no turning back. They saw the abuses, they heard both the judgment and the possibilities for change. And you know, that's really one of the gifts. Wherever the words that Jerome knew so well come to convict us, they also come to bring us promise. They speak words of forgiveness and hope and renewal. Mary and Jerome, two caves side by side. And from one came forth the word of God from the very heart of God. And from the other came forth the words that teach us of that word and hold us accountable to that word and bring us back to that word, which is our life and our salvation. Thanks be to God. Amen.